Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala Sermon Podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. What follows is an audio recording from our Sunday morning worship gathering, and we hope that you will find it encouraging, challenging, and helpful. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. Well, good morning, everybody. We're going to be this morning in uh, John chapter 13, and so you can go ahead in your Bible and, uh, and turn over there. Uh, we're going to be talking, as you uh, heard sort of in my introduction with the kids, uh, about a feast and about an event that happened in Jesus' life, and, uh, and really... As we come into this, uh, this sermon, we're dealing with the book of John in particular. We see that there is an incredible focus on this one evening of Jesus' life. It starts in chapter 13 as we open up our reading this morning, but continues all the way through chapter 18, if I recall correctly. And, and so there's this huge chunk out of the middle of the book that is, is all about the, really the last night of Jesus following to his, his trial and his arrest and, and his, his, his uh, crucifixion. John is very much targeted at that. And, and we understand this because it, it really kind of makes sense when we think about God, the gospel message that was behind the book of John. John himself in the book says, listen, I wasn't trying to give you a full history. When we realize that, it makes good sense that he spends so much time on really the last 48 hours or so of Jesus' life. So in John 13, as we jump in today, this morning, we're going to see what I see kind of as three windows into the very beginning of the most important night of Jesus' life, his last night with his disciples. And, And we get to see not the full picture, we get other pieces from different books of how that night went down. Certain books we find out that the as they go up into the upper room to celebrate the Last Supper, to have this Passover feast, they're arguing with one another about who's more important the disciples are. We find out all these different little details from different books, but tonight we're going to look at three sort of vignettes, three windows into the evening. Short stories, if you will. And and, and we're going to see how there is really one key theme that, that... that ties these windows, these little short stories together. And I really believe that the theme is is sort of spelled out by John in verse 1 of the chapter. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour, hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. So we get all kinds of stuff from this verse, right? We get the context, we get what's going on. But I really, I really think that Pastor Ryan's not here. He's gonna, he would have laughed about me using the laser pointer. Um, it's all in, the theme in my mind is this last sentence. He loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that this is his last night, loves his disciples. And it's, it's easy as you're reading through John to skip past that verse and then get into the nitty-gritty details of what happened that evening. And there's a lot that goes on. There's a lot of drama. 
But the thing that ties it all together, the key idea, is that he loved them. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning because there's a lot that happens. But we have to focus in on this. We have to understand that Jesus was incredibly aware of what was about to happen in his life. Right? He, he created the universe. He's, he, he's, he, he, knows, he knows what's happening. And it becomes more and more uh, clear to us as we continue to read and we read about him praying in the garden. And, and the turmoil and the stress and the temptation and all the things that are going on in Jesus' heart. Because he knows that he's hours away from being nailed to a Roman cross for the sins of the world. And we can say that haphazardly because we've heard it over and over and over again in church. But Jesus truly understood what that meant. He knew the, how much that was the, the physical, emotional, spiritual pain that he was about to experience. Yet his primary focus wasn't on himself. It was on the disciples. The focus wasn't on Jesus enjoying his last meal. His focus was getting on his knees and washing feet. The focus wasn't about a counseling session where the disciples helped Jesus get through something tough. He was the one leading. He was the only one in the room aware of what was happening and the stress that he was under. He served in spite of where he was. And Think for a moment where you would be, what your response would be to learning that you have just hours to live. You've got hours to live. You've got 12 hours left in your life. What, do our, what does our mind jump to? What are the things that we prioritize? Right? We live in a world that, that more and more, the, the, the closer we get to end of life, whether it's because we have some diagnosis in our, in our 30s that we, where we, we have cancer, or, or whether we're just we're, we're approaching retirement, whatever it is, what, we, what our culture does is we, 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 we expect for people to become more and more self-centered the closer they get to the end of their life. Right, you ever hear the Tim McGraw song, Live Like You Were Dying? And there's some good stuff in that song. We're not going to do theology of Tim McGraw tonight this evening. But the point is, as sinners, we become more and more about us the more and more we think about our own mortality get more selfish. Jesus did the opposite. Rather than striving to accomplish more for self, God is calling us to give of ourselves sacrificially, even as we approach the end of life. And he says he loved them to the end. I want to erase any ideas of the Western American, uh, you know, country song. Justin Bieber version of love that we hear when we see love, right? This isn't, this isn't some mushy-gushy feeling of affection. It's not an affinity for a flavor of ice cream. It's a, it's a real nitty-gritty love. It's love that meets needs by serving regardless of the cost. That's the love he had for his disciples. Because guess what? The disciples weren't that likable leading up to the end. In fact, the more they talked, the less Jesus probably liked them, right? Particularly Peter. And we're going to get into that. But, 
Jesus sets the standard high because as he's approaching end of life, his focus is on others. And he goes out of his way to make sure that the disciples understood that he was doing this as an example for them to follow. So that's our key principle for this morning. That we are commanded to follow Jesus' example and love each other. It's incredibly simple, but not at all in practice. So I think it's pretty clear that there's a theme that's set up here, but I want to go ahead and jump into the story because, like I said, there's a lot going on. And I've really loved how Pastor Todd has led you guys through John. I've been able to listen in from afar via the Internet on some of this stuff. And, and I love the way that he's been preaching through John. It's just been really cool to hear um, the way he tells the story. And, and John just has a very specific flow. In, in the things that he touches on. And, and, I, and I think Pastor Todd's done an incredible job. So I was a, a little nervous when he called me because I'm like, those are big shoes to fill. He's been doing a really good job with John. So, But I, I want to jump in and I want to kind of take, take a piece, tear it apart, and, and really get into it. This is the first scene. I call this the surprise. And this is, this is what I was talking about with the kids earlier. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come to God and was going to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them from the towel that he was, that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, I am, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and re resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you, if you do them. Wow. This past week, we all celebrated Thanksgiving, right? And it is a bit of a stretch to compare Passover and Thanksgiving, but they do have similarities, right? They start a sort of uh, greater holiday season, right? Passover is later followed by the Feast of Weeks. So, you know, the Feast of Weeks is coming when, when Passover is coming. So they're kind of set together in a group holiday season. Um, and they both Thanksgiving and Passover start off, kick off with a meal. I mean, 
Yeah, you know, Thanksgiving kind of is the meal. But you know what I'm saying. At the center of the holiday is, is a meal, a celebratory meal, a Thanksgiving meal. Our let's remember the good things God gave is done meal. And so there's a lot of preparation and there's all this stuff. And so we can kind of get into the mood of Passover by just inserting our own Thanksgiving celebration. Because it really, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's probably a story for every Passover that these guys ever had where the, you know, the drunk uncle did something embarrassing, right? Uh, there, there's probably a story where... Uh, you know, there, there, there's the stress of the preparations. There's uh, food and the smell of familiar smell of foods that we only eat at this time of year. All these things are sort of tucked into Passover. And so Jesus walks into this evening and it's already an incredibly meaningful night. I'm skipping stuff accidentally. Um, it's already an incredibly meaningful night for the disciples. It's because it's Passover. And so, in the case of this supper, there's a surprise that comes. And we all probably get to the place in life now where we expect there to be some kind of a story, some kind of drama, right? Some kind of argument that comes up at the Thanksgiving dinner table. And, but this time, the surprise of the Passover feast comes from Jesus himself. And it's when he, in the middle of dinner, gets up... Well, shoot, who, okay, you're, you just got into the stuffing and you have to get up to get something in the kitchen. Isn't that the worst thing ever? Jesus gets up from supper and he does the unexpected. What does he do? He goes and he washes the disciples' feet. This is, and I explain this to the kids, a world of unpaved roads. There's no Honda Civic post, uh, parked in the parking lot that they're going to take home. No, most of them are walking through town or, or out, you know, between villages. They've got sandals. It's a sandy terrain, not unlike North Florida. These guys have nasty feet, right? And they don't have running water, so they don't bathe much. But one thing they do regularly clean are their hands and their feet. And so most, most of the time, you would expect you would wash your own feet. I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that make sense? Like, that's one thing you don't have somebody wash for you, is, is your feet. And there was an exception to this rule, which was if you were going to go dine at a rich man's house, he may have a servant that would wash feet for you. It was sort of like, you know, that was the fancy, that was a really fancy place if you had somebody that would wash your feet for you. But here's the thing. Jesus goes out of his way in the middle of an already meaningful moment and pulls a distraction. He pulls a surprise and he goes and he does something no one would ever expect him to do. Maybe a slave would wash feet, but never a rabbi, especially his disciples. So Jesus served regardless of expectation. We live in a culture that expects selfishness. Right? We expect people to show up late and try to leave early. We expect people to do what they want at the inconvenience of others. We expect people to drive in the left lane and pass on the right. Right? But Jesus goes out of his way and he does that which is unexpected. And here's the question. What would happen to this town if every person in here decided to take on the task of serving? 
What if you became the husband who takes out the garbage before she asked? What if we went out of our way to help at work those who we don't even necessarily like, but we do it because we're being a servant? What if we did more than our clients expected and we just tacked it on, we did it for free? What if we showed up every Sunday, didn't just show up every Sunday, but asked Pastor Todd, Ryan, or Michael, how can we serve? Here's the thing. Jesus got a question when he did something unexpected. And if we're to be out in the world making disciples, we want people to ask the question, why? So a great way to have those meaningful conversations about Jesus is to go out and to be a person who's washing feet. Nobody expects it. Not only is he washing feet outside of the expectation, but he's washing feet outside of deservedness. Right? Nobody expected Jesus to wash their feet, and nobody thought that they deserved to have Jesus wash their feet. Even Peter, who, you know, most of the time is pretty clueless, says, uh, Jesus, I hate to bring this up, but you don't, that's, this isn't how this works. I don't deserve to have my feet washed by you. We live in a justice-based society, but the gospel is based on the opposite attitude, the, op- the attitude of Christ that looked at our self-made mess full of sin hatred towards God and humbled himself and we see this come out we see this play out in in Simon Peter who you know we we, we can give him a hard we're going to give him a hard time we, we we do need to give him a little bit of a you know it was a weird situation he was the only one willing to, to ask Jesus what was what the heck was going on that's pretty much really what happened but here's Jesus about to die for the sins of the world, he interrupts his own meal to handle feet, and Peter puts up a fuss. Right? Now let's just put ourselves in the feet of, Je- in the feet of Jesus, right? To put ourselves in Jesus' shoes and say, Peter, just, just, just be quiet. Right? I'm getting there, Peter. I'm going to explain this. But Peter has to make it difficult. Peter has to get into a theological debate with the creator of the universe about whether or not he should have his feet washed by Jesus. But Jesus didn't lose his cool, and he didn't ignore or even embarrass Peter. He patiently talked him down and continued to do what he was doing. Choosing to serve the unlovable spouse is putting feet on the gospel. Choosing to serve the rebellious child is like is being like Christ. Choosing to serve our boss, even when they're unjust, is living the life that God wants us to live. Being a servant means extending grace to those in our lives, even the Peters, that always have a way of making things more difficult. Right? Jesus washed feet because he wants us to wash each other's feet. He served because he wants us to serve. He loved because he wants us to love. We could spend all morning on the foot washing. We really could. But we have to move on. We have to move on to the next scene. I call this one the early dismissal. Hopefully there was no early dismissals at your Thanksgiving feast. Those are always awkward. 
He says in verse 18, I am not speaking to all of you. I know who I have chosen. So this is picking right up off where he left off. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is John, by the way, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then he had quickly taken the morsel. Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew what he was, knew that he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he would give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So I'm guessing that whatever drama happened at your Thanksgiving tables, it didn't really chalk up to this, right? The betrayal of Jesus Christ by one of his own disciples. I mean, maybe you had a really rough Thanksgiving. I don't know. But Judas was one of the men that Jesus had spent so much time with, and he is singled out as the one who is going to betray Jesus. Now, kind of like our discussion in James this morning, this comes prepackaged with all kinds of hypothetical theological questions that, you know, you could go in and, and probably write a doctorate in your seminary, you know, for, you know, what do we do with Judas and predestination and all, all of this kind of stuff. We can get caught up in it. But there's, so there's a lot of things that we don't really know from the Scripture, but there are some things we do know. And, and I want to just briefly go over that. The first thing we know about Judas and the betrayal is that Judas was already in a consistent pattern of sin and deception. Right? Judas wasn't one of the guys walking into uh, the, the, the last night you know, with a clean slate, completely repentant, and you know, just a perfect citizen. Now, none of these guys were perfect citizens. My point is that the Bible goes out, of our way, goes out of its way to tell us that Judas was in a pattern of unrepentant sin before any of this happens. And we know this because of John 12, uh, verse 4. It says that Judas, one of the disciples, said, Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is from our story from last week. He says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because... Because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas was already in a consistent pattern of sin and deception. Secondly, Judas had been plotting to betray Jesus before Jesus dismissed him. 
And Matthew kind of helps fill in this gap. It says that Judas had reached out to the, to the chief priests in the days leading up to the Passover in Matthew 26, uh, verse 14. It says that one of the twelve, whose name was Judas, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. By the way, that was the price for a slave that had been killed in an accident. So it's a, it's a very insignificant amount of money, is the point. Judas was already under demonic influence. That's the third thing. Beneath the surface of, a, of the purely physical world, there was a battle raging for the heart of Judas. And, and we know that because of verse 2 from this very chapter. It says that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas' story should, is, is one that should make us all pause. Because Judas is the story of a guy who looked like he was on the inside, but he was actually an outsider on the inside. He looked like one of the disciples. He, had all the, he, he, he showed up to all the same meetings. He had heard all of Jesus' teachings. He had seen all of the miracles. He had been there for everything that Jesus had done to teach and to train his disciples. But he wasn't really one of them. He was an, in, he was an outsider on the inside. We tend to get caught up in all kinds of nonsense when we talk about Judas. Like, was he really saved? Or did he lose his salvation? Or how does this work? But this is all a distraction. Because all of the church, all of the ministry, all of the appearances in the world won't save you from the sin inside and the condemnation it brings. Salvation is only found in repentance of our sin and in relationship with the Lord whose sacrifice paid the price of our sin. If you would have asked the random guy on the street, they would have figured Judas was as equally a disciple of Jesus as everybody else. But the difference was he didn't have a repentant heart. And so likewise, we can go about all of the Christianity that we want, but if we don't have a repentant heart, we're in the same block as Judas was. So there's clearly a negative example for us to learn from, but we're not here to really learn about Judas. We're here to learn about Jesus' example. And what's Jesus showing us here? Jesus has planned this whole evening out. Right? You ever do this, right? You go into Thanksgiving, you have a plan. It gets messed up, right? And this, is, this is kind of what's happening to Jesus. But, but Jesus comes in with a plan. He knows that he's going to do this example of a thing and wash the disciples' feet. He knows that Isaiah has promised that he's going to give a piece of bread to, Jesus, to, to, to the man who's going to betray him, and then he's going to leave and betray him. He knows it's in Isaiah. He's the God of the universe. He knows that Judas is there. But he chooses to do a foot washing before he does anything with Judas. Before he sends Judas packing and, and reveals him as the one that's going to betray him, the one that was promised in the prophets, he goes and he gets a basin and he girds himself with a towel and he washes Judas' feet. To the key principle, we're called to follow Jesus' example of loving one another. One another doesn't just mean our family. It does mean our family. 
But it doesn't just mean our friends. It doesn't just mean the people that we find it easy to love. It means our enemies. And, and this example that Jesus lays follows all of these all of these texts that we have all throughout Scripture, and some of which we read this, all, this morning already. In Matthew 5, he says, I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those... This is funny how it's even worded. If you love those who you love, what reward is there? If you serve the people that you love and have affection for, pick up, he says. Of course you do that. Everybody does that. Do not even the tax collectors and do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? He says, love your enemies. Love Judas, that guy who's looking at you and he's kind of sweating cuz he knows what he's about to do. That guy that you know what he's about to do. Wash his feet. It's incredibly powerful. We've got to head towards the end here. But we still have one more scene. I think it's interesting. It's clear that the disciples are pretty lost, right? We have Peter, we have Peter catcalling, yelling, Hey John, hey John, who's he talking about? And John gets the answer and apparently doesn't share it. And it's, and it's like, this is just, it's, 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 it's really, you know, it's quite the scene. Um, you know, got a painting out of it, right? Uh, so, this is the, the last scene, the last seven verses. He says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are disciples. If you live love for another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So the, the culprit of this interruption, and I call this the, the, the other interruption, which is Peter. The, the, he's the culprit. He's the one with the hand up. And Jesus at this point is used to it. Uh, Jesus, I got a question. Now, did, did we see the turn? Did we see the turn in the passage? Jesus is, is teaching about loving one another. One of the toughest things he's ever done in washing Judas' feet. And he says, I want you to do that. I want you to love your enemies and I want you to love one another. Hey, Jesus, where are you going? Right? P- Peter isn't even on topic. 
He's not paying attention. He's caught up in something because, like us, he, he, he has a, he has a uh, love of hearing his own voice. He, he thinks he's a little bit smarter than he probably is, and, and he's a little overzealous, right? Sounds a lot like us most days, right? And he says, Jesus, where are you going? I'll, I'll come. I'll, I'll fight with you. Why is he talking about dying for Jesus? What, what is he? What, he's thinking that Jesus is planning a rebellion. He's still on the idea that Jesus' whole ministry was about coming and kicking the Romans out and establishing himself on the throne of David in Jerusalem, just like it talks about in the Old Testament. And that's going to happen. He wasn't too far off. He was close. He just missed it. No, first, Jesus, no, first Peter, I, I'm, I'm going to die on a cross. Pay for your sin. I'm going to do the thing that nobody expects. When they saw him riding in on a donkey, they thought that there was a revolution coming. Peter's saying, listen, listen, Jesus, put me at the front of the line. And Jesus has to say, no, you don't get it. That's not what I'm here to do. And we can all rejoice at this truth, that in spite of... All the reason Jesus gave, or Peter gave Jesus to give up on him, Jesus continually, patiently loved a guy who missed it. He was Peter, the rock on which I will build my church, and he, on the night in which he was betrayed, making a total fool of himself for us to read about. But yet Jesus still chose to use a guy that most of the time didn't get it. Like Peter, we completely miss the point of what God is doing, and he uses us anyways. Jesus is trying to give final instructions, and Peter's being a distraction. Jesus knew all of this, yet he still loved him. We can stand here encouraged because we see Peter in ourselves, but who are the Peters in our life? The people who we've written off because they never seem to get it. And they're always a distraction. And they're a, a liability, not an asset, to what we're trying to do. Whether it be at work, or in our family, or in our church. Who are the people that are the Peters in your life? And are you choosing to love through another interruption? Are you choosing to love him the way them the way that Jesus loves Peter? Peter didn't see G Peter as a problem. He saw Peter as potential. And this guy, this guy that we, we sit here and we're like, how did he miss it? Does wind up being a leader that winds up transforming through through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit gets to be a part of this early church movement that transforms the world and is the reason why we're here today. So we can knock on Peter all you want. If it, wasn't for, you know, if it wasn't for what God did through Peter, this wouldn't be happening. Who are the people that we see as problems, not as potential? Because in God's mind, 
people aren't the problem. People are the, are the point of it all. So there's a lot of different layers to this story. There's a lot of different characters involved. But I want for us as we go to look at these application questions. And, and, and they're really challenging. I talked to Pastor Todd. I, he said, are you ready for Sunday? And I said, I'm really ready. I think it's just going to get really real. <laughs> because this passage is so practical, you can't get out from under it. Jesus gives a pretty clear commandment, and then he repeats it three times. I want you to love one another. Because when you love one another, people know that you're my disciples. So love one another. So what are the practical steps that we can take this week to develop an other-centered attitude? Because it's not just like Jesus walked into this Last Supper or into the, his betrayal and his crucifixion, and it's then that he had an other-centered attitude. Now, this was the, the marker of his life. So we can say, I don't know what God's going to do with me. How can God use my life? in such an insignificant thing like my work or my family or my whatever it is, my school. But what we have to recognize is we can get used in the big moments of life by having an other-centered attitude on a daily basis. What are some practical steps we can take? Also, which humbling and sacrificial tasks are Jesus calling you to perform in obedience to the command to wash each other's feet. Because he said wash each other's feet. And I'm glad that in the Grace Brethren Fellowship, we literally wash each other's feet. But there's a bigger truth there than just foot dirt, right? I think we really are supposed to wash each other's feet. But what are the things that you avoid doing to serve others because they're nasty? Because they involve being humble. Which humbling and sacrificial tasks are Jesus calling you to perform? Who is the enemy that the Holy Spirit has brought to mind this morning? Right? It was pretty obvious for Jesus, right? Judas was about to betray him. But who are the people? Who's the, the ex or the, the mother-in-law or the co-worker or the competition in business or the principal or the boss or the insert whatever it is that God is asking you to love? What action steps can we take this week to begin following in Jesus' example of washing Judas' feet? When your enemy is hungry, feed him. When he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head, it says. You want to change a relationship that's been poisoned and negative and painful, you can do that by serving. That's what the scripture says. Fourthly, is, is there anyone that you've lost patience for and treat like a problem and not potential. Make a plan to pray to change your heart. Because there are people in our lives that it's so easy to just write them off and to put them on the list of people that I avoid. Because they're a pain in the, they're, they're a pain in the neck. We don't want to deal with it. Jesus didn't run Peter off. He talked Peter down. He was patient. 
He was loving towards a guy that was honestly hard to deal with a lot of the times. I'm going to go ahead and pray. And I hope that the Lord is, is convicting. And as, as we finish up this morning, uh, there's the connection cards. And that's a way for us to, to sort of confess in a, in a private but also public way. And so if you're after we're done praying, if, if you want to fill out with those connection cards and share what the Lord's been doing in your heart this morning, that would be awesome. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala or the sermon you just heard, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org.